Hello, this is Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Podcast. Welcome to another fantastic edition of the Oncology Journal Club. This week, we are back after a short break whilst the team enjoyed a fantastic virtual ESMO. Today's episode is the first of three special ESMO editions. Today, the team talk about papers that caught their eye. Eva chats with Lizzie Smith about the practice changing GI presentations. And Hans gives us his thoughts on the supportive care papers. We also have some controversial questions from a very special international contributor, a true cult figure in the oncology world. So you are in for an entertaining and informative episode. As ever, links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes. Thank you to our hosts, presenters, guest interviewer, and to you, the listeners, for your support and feedback. We really appreciate it, so please do reach out to us via Twitter or email if you have any comments or suggestions. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, get the Oncology Newsletter for free on our website. You'll see the link on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. It's been an amazing weekend with the ESMO Scientific Conference. Lots of videos, lots of Zooms. I had the privilege of being a chair in a session and giving a discussion, and it's such a different experience. Hans, how did you go? Very good, Eva. I also enjoyed this format very much, especially because I could sit in my swimming pants following all this news from ESMO. That was a bit too much information, Hans, but I must admit, I was sitting in my Qantas pyjamas in the evening in Australia, crying, thinking about how much better it would have been in Madrid. But I did think the quality of the presentations and the abstracts was probably higher than the average ESMO, and I wondered whether that was as a function of COVID, people didn't put them in for ASCO because of the crisis in the early part of the year and then needed to put things in and get them out there into the public sphere. I'd say ESMO and ASCO are pretty much on par as far as presenting big data now. And of course, you miss set live questions and people like Vogel New York asking the tough questions. Wouldn't it be hilarious if he would ring us, Vogel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be Craig playing a joke on us. So yeah, come I on, know. let's get on with analysing ESMO. 2020 for the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Hans, you had a great time at Virtual ESMO looking at some of the supportive care presentations. What were your highlights? Sure, Eva. I selected actually three interesting abstracts which I would like to discuss. The first one is a study from a group in Toronto and it's called a pragmatic cluster randomized trial of ambulatory toxicity management in patients receiving chemotherapy in breast cancer. As you know, most chemotherapy is given in ambulatory settings, so most toxicity the patients have is at home. What they wanted to do is to evaluate the impact of proactive telephone-based toxicity management on the number of hospitalization and also emergency department visits. So they want to avoid hospitalizations, and visits of emergency departments. What they did is that there were 20 centers participating and 10 were control centers, while the other 10 centers used the intervention system. So they used symptom management booklets 
also two virtual symptom management calls following each chemotherapy cycles. And a bit surprisingly, there was no difference in mean number of hospitalizations per patient between both groups, but there was less grade 3 toxicities and also a smaller decline of quality of life. So I still think that the conclusion of this study is that actually active management of toxicity is certainly a must. And if you can, I think certainly in COVID times, where we do more and more telephone calls, I think it's certainly a must to include this in your clinical practice if you can. The second two abstracts which I would like to discuss are both on actually malnutrition. As you know, we had also recently a discussion in one of the previous podcasts about malnutrition. And one of the groups is a study from Valencia, Spain, and they wanted to look at the impact of malnutrition according to the GLIM criteria in cancer patients admitted to the hospital. So what are the GLIM criteria? So this is the Global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition Criteria. These were actually proposed recently to standardize the diagnosis of malnutrition. And the goal in this study was to determine the nutritional status and prevalence of malnutrition in cancer in patients, and they used this GLIM criteria. And then furthermore, they want to associate this with infections and length of hospital stay. It's a prospective study, and they looked at 107 patients. Most patients were lung, colon, or other GI tumors. And what did they find? That about 50%, so 5-0, had severe malnutrition, 20% moderate, so it means already 70% patients with malnutrition. And in these groups, there were more infections and also longer hospital stays. So for those that are not convinced yet, nutritional status or nutritional evaluation is very essential in your daily management of an oncologist. The last one wanted to look at the relationship between sarcopenia and anthracycline-related cardiotoxicity in patients with cancer. And I think for me, I never saw a result like this before, but I don't think it has ever been looked at. It's from a group from Turkey, and they evaluated patients that received anthracyclines, and they looked at 166 patients. Most patients had breast cancer or lymphoma, and they determined sarcopenia, so it was determined based on abdominal CT measurements, which is a standard as we do it a lot in literature. And they found there was a significant association between CT-based diagnosis of sarcopenia and anthracycline-related cardiotoxicity. So I think what does it mean that in the future, maybe cardioprotective measurements have to be considered in patients with sarcopenia, or we should do maybe prospective studies looking whether an intervention might help avoiding anthracycline-based cardiotoxicity, specifically in the group with sarcopenia. That's very interesting, Hans. I was asked for a medico-legal opinion about some cardiac toxicity from anthracycline resulting in someone needing a transplant. So I will certainly look to see whether there was a sarcopenic uh, factor in there. One thing that really puzzled me was this issue this year of dress code. So we had some people in T-shirts, others in suits and ties, the women were variably dressed up. What's your opinion there, Hans? You're a pretty cash guy. 
I actually like the casual look, but I must say, even when I go to meetings non-virtual, that I usually go quite casual. I think it's uh, a bit also a difference with, with doctors around the world. On one side, you have doctors that this. I think we. I even saw on Twitter some discussion about this to see whether doctors should wear a tie, should wear a suit, yes or no. So I think you have different opinions there worldwide. I don't know what's the general attitude in Australia. Craig, your feeling, suit and tie or uh, very cash? I think if I was doing a presentation for an ESMO webinar like that, I'd probably, not a tie, but I'd wear casual business clothes. I wouldn't be in my Qantas pyjamas, which I'm, as you know, I'm wearing right now. Yeah, but what about med bikini? Surely it's time for that to make an appearance at ESMO. Ooh, no. Hence, you had some more GI data for us. Yes, indeed. I want to highlight a few. So the one of these uh, abstracts looked actually at the effect of five years of imaging and CA follow-up to detect recurrence in colon cancer. I think it's already debate for quite some time whether we should do an intensive follow-up after curative resection of primary tumors. And they had a double randomization for imaging, so either intensive CT scans or, on the other hand, ultrasound and X-ray, and also CA monitoring, yes or no. And actually, the results are a bit surprising because there is no difference in overall survival between the two groups. There is an increase in curative resection in the group with intensive follow-up, but it had no impact on overall survival. So the authors claim that CA surveillance is quite useless and maybe we should do only CT in follow-up when we have a suspected recurrence. So I think this trial is open for some debate. Another one looked at hepatic arterial infusion chemotherapy with Folfox versus TACE in unresectable HCC. It's a Chinese study. As you know, most people do TACE. It's currently the standard of care for patients with unresectable HCC. And they randomized this between the two groups. And they found that if you use intra-arterial chemotherapy with Folfox, that it significantly improved overall survival compared with TACE. So it's certainly an alternative for TACE, I think, in this setting. The other one that I want to present is a Canadian trial. Uh, we all want to give immune therapy for different diseases and also in pancreatic cancer we have tried it. And this is a Canadian trial that looked at the combination of Durvalumab, Tremolimumab, plus classical chemo of gemcitabine and napaclitaxel. It's a randomized phase two. And again, like most pancreatic cancer trials, it's a negative trial. There's no improvement in OS, PFS, or response rates. So still, until now, there's no place for immune therapy in this uh, terrible disease. Craig, did you have something on sarcoma as well? I did, Hans. And a couple of reasons why I picked this was these are both from the French group. So France actually has a national sarcoma reference panel and they do refer patients at a national level to some experts to come up with treatment plans. They collect data and they do trials together. So they reported a couple of papers. One was about high clinical benefit rates for single-agent pembrolizumab in selected rare sarcoma histotypes. So this was in 80 patients with rare types of sarcoma, chordomas, 
alveolar soft part sarcoma, desmoplastic small round cell tumor, SMARC4 malignant rhabdoid sarcoma. So the interesting thing was that in the chordomas, they found particularly quite high response rate with durable responses. So it's interesting that they're pursuing that now in uh, more patients. And the second one is called Tremune, a phase 1b study combining trabectidin and devolumab in patients with pretreated soft tissue sarcomas. This was presented by my colleague Maud Toulmon from the Institut Bourguigny in Bordeaux. 40 patients with relapsed sarcoma and again, some significant activity seen in this tumour. So Eva, I think I'm throwing to you now. Are you going to tell us about what happened in head and neck? Okay, two negative head and neck trials of IO concurrent with chemo radiation for locally advanced head and neck squamous cancer. That's the Javelin Head and Neck 100 and the Pembro Rad trial, which was Pembro versus Cetuximab with radiation. But there was a positive head and neck study. The neoadjuvant incision trial was a phase 1B2A. They had a 31% PATH-CR or near PATH-CR, and interestingly, those patients when followed up had 100% relapse-free survival at 12 months. There was some evidence FDG-PET was a biomarker as well as TMB and lots of correlative studies, so watch this space. Now, Eva, there must have been something about COVID. There were many sessions about COVID, but I think the most important is the results of the ESMO Resilience Task Force survey collaboration. This collaboration has done two surveys, the first in April, May, which was reported at this meeting, and a second in July, August. They had 1,520 respondents from 101 countries, and they measured their well-being and something called their COVID-9 work performance. And they found both of those were related to the country's COVID-19 mortality rate. And what about brain metastases? Yes, look, there's fascinating presentations throughout the meeting. I found this interesting. It was a clinical characterization of a real-life cohort of 6,001. Why do they always put one? Why isn't it just 6,000? with brain mets from solid cancers between 1986 and 2020. They said that it's 10 times more common to have a brain met than a GBM as the lesion, malignant lesion in the brain. This was a series from Vienna. 51% were from lung cancer, 16% from breast, 11% melanoma, 9% colorectal, 6% renal and the rest a smattering of other cancers. It's a good one for the trainees to look at what can you expect if a patient presents with brain mets and no obvious primary. I think Eva they chose 6001 because then you can say we have more than 6000 patients. I think you're right Hans. Now Hans there was a paper by our own Tom John looking at the intracranial efficacy of entrectinib in patients with entract fusion positive solid tumours who had CNS metastases at baseline and showed that this agent gives strong and durable intracranial response 
even in heavily pre-treated tumours, and there was no increase in CNS side effects if you had CNS disease. So I think we have now two strong drugs within this Antrac fusion positive disease eh? because they also showed an update on the ligotractinib data, which seems also extremely good. And now I'm going to ask you to report what trials you thought were interesting from the session that I presented in. Did either of you watch it? Yes, of course. It was compulsory viewing. (laughs) Hands, you're looking very embarrassed. What was it on again, Eva? Oh, that's right. Neuroendocrine tumors. I'm I'm starting to sweat here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there were quite a number of Aussie discussants. Actually, Tim Price was a discussant during the colorectal session. There Jayesh Desai, Ben Solomon presented, Tom John. So I'm sure there are many, many other Aussies as well. So from the net session, I think the most interesting was the results of the DUNE trial done by the Spanish group, which was a phase two study of Derva and Tremi, so Dervalumab and Tremolumumab. Patients had advanced neuroendocrine neoplasm from gastroenterohepatic or lung. They could be any grade. And it really showed disappointing results for all groups except for the G3 patients. So there'd been a lot of hope from previous reports such as the DART study, but these were big basket trials. And when they reported their neuroendocrine cohorts, there seemed to be significantly more efficacy than this trial showed. Speaking of basket trials, yes, one that took my eye only because we actually are conducting this study in Australia as well, but it's a, a new molecule called ALKS4230 being given in combination with pembrolizumab in multiple tumour types. So this is a what's called the Artistry 1 study. It's an engineered interleukin-2 variant. So as you expect, one of the side effects can be fevers and uh, drug reaction. But again, it looks like to be an active combination in patients who have failed previous immunotherapy drugs. So that should be uh, interesting to see further reports from that. And it was mentioned in the financial media. So it was probably that counts as this week's investor Investor update. Thank you, Eva. And Hans, you've got some data from Europe about cancer burden. (laughs) I put it on the screen for you. Can you read it on the message? It's face and was just priceless. I wish this was a video podcast because <laughs> Hans, can you carry your weight? Jesus. <laughs> Indeed, Eva, there was a presentation on the estimation of European cancer burden for the year 2020, and they report 1.2 million new cases in women and 550,000 deaths. In men, 1.4 million new cases with 706,000 deaths. So in women, breast and lung, deaths are equal. And this is, I think, an important phenomenon. And there is significant variation across the 27 EU countries. Importantly, this is data from pre-COVID times. Prediction data, is that right? Yes, indeed. So, Craig, 
I believe you've got now an abstract on a cancer we've not yet mentioned before on the Oncology Journal Club podcast. I can't think why. This one pricked your interest. <laughs> Can you give us the tips? <laughs> yes, Eva. I'm going to talk about penile cancer, and I've got not one but two. Really? Yeah, two abstracts to talk about. So this is a you know rare cancer. It's overrepresented in the third world. There's very few clinical trials in this space. So there's two abstracts. One was seeing whether the association with HPV infection influenced outcome. So in fact, was another negative study. So a positive result in a way to know that HPV negative tumors, although associated with a higher incidence of TP53 alteration compared to the HPV positive tumors, there was no difference in outcome. And it's leading to some thoughts around some rational drug development in this space. But the second abstract was really just an outline of IMPACT, which is the International Penile Advanced Cancer Trial. So an international trial, again, looking was needed in this space to be able to pull enough patients. And it's looking at the role of neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy and prophylactic pelvic lymph node dissection, which leads also to the thought about organ preservation. It's really important to have some hard data in this space. (laughs) Hard data. (laughs) So, Eva, we can't end on that note. You must have one more abstract for us. Of course I do, and this comes from the Netherlands, much better country than Belgium, I think. It's called Validation of Whole Genome Sequencing in Routine Clinical Practice, the WIDE study. Now, in the Netherlands, they have access to many new and repurposed drugs based on biomarkers, but the pathologists were getting annoyed that they kept being asked to do more and more molecular studies for different biomarkers. So they set up this study of NGS on all comers. And of course, you need fresh frozen DNA, a high quality biopsy that has more than 20% tumour and more than 50 nanograms of DNA. And they also wanted to test the feasibility and the clinical validation as well as the clinical value. So they reported the first 800 of 1,200 patients, they found that 66% of biopsies or 71% of patients, they could perform whole genome sequencing with a 10-day turnaround and that it had 98% concordance with standard diagnostics. They found that in 50%, they identified an additional biomarker for which there was a clinical trial and that 25% of patients then were able to access this treatment through their program. And you have an idea, Eva, how this NGS was sponsored in that trial? Was it uh, government that paid for it? Because that's an important issue, I think. Yes, it was government, and I like the phrase that the pathologists use. There's a trade-off between cost, time, and tissue. So if you actually add up the cost of going back to get the tissue every time we want another biomarker because we've got another new drug, that was part of the reason to do the study, to see if one up, whole genome, never have to repeat it, whatever drug comes along, 
well, perhaps not an epigenetic modifier, but for genomics, for most of our drugs, one up, up front, rather than this trial by trial, let's look at this marker, let's now go back. And we know lots of patients are having rebiopsies to get enough tissue for yet another marker if they're on phase one trials. It's a great pleasure to interview my friend Lizzie Smith, an oncologist working in Cambridge, England, well known to all of us in the GI field. And she had the honour of being the discussant at the Presidential Three Symposium at ESMO. We had a whole symposium on esophagogastric cancer. That's an unusual feature, isn't it, Lizzie? Oh, thanks so much for having me here today. Yeah, it was fantastic. This was, you know, I think a 20-year event for us oncologists who treat esophagogastric cancer. So it was very exciting. Four positive studies, maybe. I've heard it called three and a half positive studies. So yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity. Great. Well, let's go through the major studies and what they showed. So we had two studies looking at nivolumab with chemotherapy versus placebo and chemo in first line of advanced disease? Yeah, so the two trials that I had an opportunity to discuss were Checkmate 649 and Attraction 4. And as you said, those were first-line trials for treatment-naive patients with advanced gastric and gastroesophageal cancer. Checkmate 649 was a global study, recruited patients all over the world, about 25% of Asian patients and Attraction 4 was recruited only in Asia. Both of them used platinum, oxaliplatin, and uh, fluoroprimidine backbone, which is, I think, what we would use for most of our patients, and plus or minus nivolumab. And I think it's important to differentiate them in terms of primary endpoint because Checkmate 649, which was the global study, had a primary endpoint in a biomarker-selected group. So patients who had pdl one expression with a CPS score of five or greater. And we know that that's probably somewhere between 30, 35% of the population, whereas Attraction 4 took an all-comer population. And Checkmate 649 was positive for its primary endpoints in progression-free and overall survival for patients treated with nivolumab, who were CPS 5 or greater. And we saw, almost for the first time, in a non-Asian population, median overall survival breaking through the one-year barrier, which is uh, fantastic. We know median overall survival for these patients is usually less than a year. And, you know, in contrast, actually, in Attraction 4, we didn't see an overall survival benefit, or we did see progression-free survival benefit. Uh, it's a little tricky to figure out why that is, because it could be because it wasn't biomarker selected, so we need to see some translational work, or it could be because a lot of the patients in Attraction 4 had second-line treatment because they're Asian patients and they have multiple lines of treatment. So I think we need to do a little bit more digging to find out why that overall survival endpoint wasn't positive. I'll bring in now Keynote 590, Pembro plus chemo for first line. This was advanced esophageal cancer, included geojunction, adenocarcinoma, but was predominantly squamous. And you did make some comments in your discussion and in the question and answer about this long-standing issue of whether we mix adenos and squames in trials. 
Yeah, I think that is, you know, I pretty strong feelings on this. I, for, you know, these cancers, they're in the same place, but they've got a different biology. I mean, we know that since the TCGA and, you know, squamous cancers, you know, the etiology of squamous cancers, it's smoking and drinking and they've got high mutation burden and, and they respond better to immune checkpoint blockade, adenocarcinoma, especially junctional adenocarcinoma. It's down to reflux. And there is a TH, TH, TH1, TH2 switch for those tumors that causes them to be quite immunosuppressive. So environment. So they're not super responsive to immunotherapy. So the 590 results are really, I think, positive for squamous cancers. Excellent for the high PDL1 scores for the squamous cancers in general. I have yet to see a Kaplan Meyer curve for the adenocarcinoma. And I would really like to see what the adenocarcinoma who were not CPS10, how they did. I think that's critical. And lastly, so they enrolled, I think, CWERT1 cancers. And I would really like to know how good we are at determining whether a cancer is a CWERT1 or a CWERT2, because I know in my MDT that, you know, we're probably, it's quite tricky. So I think there's, there's a bit of no question, no question that this is an excellent treatment for squames, but the adenocarcinoma, I think we need to look at that data a little bit more deeply. Thanks, Lizzie. And then what I found actually to be possibly the most important study in a way is Checkmate 577. So these are patients who receive trimodality therapy, chemo radiation, and then surgery for locally advanced esophageal or OG junction cancer. Again, they mixed adenos and squames. They took patients who had residual disease at resection and then randomized them to nivolumab or placebo and had a striking outcome, I think. Yes. So this is the first adjuvant study after chemo radiotherapy. And what was one striking finding for me was that the survival in the control group was exceptionally poor, a median DFS of 11 months. And this was, in fact, doubled by nivolumab. So it is a fantastic positive trial for patients who are in this setting. The question is, who are the patients who go into this setting? So it depends on what your approach to treating locally advanced squamous and adenocarcinoma of the junction is. So it depends on your center's preference, I think. So certainly where I work, neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy followed by surgery is the treatment of choice for squamous cancers. And so this will be a fantastic treatment for those patients after surgery if they have residual disease in the resection specimen, because this was one of the criteria for entering the trial. There might be, again, and we're coming back to this squamous adenodichotomy in terms of sensitivity to immunotherapy, there might be a question about which is the best treatment for adenocarcinoma, because certainly in, in Europe, we use a little more perioperative chemotherapy rather than neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy. So the question, I, I don't think that our practice will change based on this trial, and it certainly doesn't allow for adjuvant nivolumab after perioperative chemotherapy, because we don't know if there's a question about radiosensitizing. But a positive result, if this is the treatment that you use to get your patient to surgery, certainly. And we'll move quickly to colorectal cancer. 
The major finding for me was the quality of life data from Keynote 177, mainly because I sparked a bit of a Twitter war when I jumped in on some conversations about do we need to wait for the full publication of 177 before this becomes standard or should we be offering it now? And there was heated debate on Twitter I think the quality of life data adds to the argument for using this quite strongly. What do you think? So it was interesting that the quality of life data was better even before there were responses. So I think that that's the key. So we know that chemotherapy, it was our best option for many years. In MSI patients, it doesn't work. So why should we add this toxicity for patients when we have another option like immune checkpoint blockade, there's no doubt in my mind that the better treatment that leads to long-term outcomes is immune checkpoint blockade. One of the, I hesitate to call it a silver lining, but since COVID in the UK on the Cancer Drugs Fund, we have had access to immune checkpoint blockade first line for patients with MSI high colon cancer to try and avoid chemotherapy in this setting. And so this has been a real blessing and it's a fantastic option for patients. I think as oncologists, without being a cheerleader for any particular type of treatment, it really does offer the opportunity to improve patients in terms of their symptoms very quickly. And often if we're using single immunotherapy, so PD-1 rather than PD-1 and CTLA-4, which does cause a few more complications, it has very few side effects. So it's, it's very satisfying, I think, for us to use these treatments as oncologists. So you're not waiting for the full publication? No, no, we've been using it for a while. And you know what the funding structures are like in the UK. So I think that we've been very lucky to be able to do that. Great. Any other highlights from colorectal that you'd like to discuss? Not off the top of my head, actually. I thought the colorectal abstracts didn't have the same, perhaps, wow factor as the esophagogastric abstracts this year. I mean, I think there were abstracts on staging, and it was intensive versus less intensive staging. We saw very early data, I think, on avelumab and cetuximab in the EGF4 previously treated colon cancer, but the data is not randomized. And again, looking at the efficacy of ctDNA in selecting patients who are sensitive to EGF4 rechallenge, I, I think there's a lot of room to improve our rechallenge in that setting, but they were relatively early data. Lizzie, it's been fantastic having you along. We've just had somebody ring in with a a question. We sometimes get that on our podcast, so don't be put off. It's likely to be some, you know, nobody that no one's heard of who probably isn't even an oncologist. So let's see who it is. Hello. It's Vogel New York. Yeah, sure. Vogel New York. Craig, is that your, uh, you've got someone to play a joke and call in? Wouldn't it be hilarious if Vogel New York called in? What's your question, Vogel New York? Vogel New York, could you please tell us the initial honest statistical considerations for this three-arm study? Bristol-Myers seems to have ignored the third arm and drawn a set of statistical considerations for only the two arms that gave results that Bristol-Myers likes. Obviously, Bristol-Myers 
has a vested interest in selling both nivolumab and ipilimumab before the ipilimumab goes off patent. So it's under some pressure to sell more ipilimumab. Would the results have been the same if the statistical considerations had taken count of the multiple possible comparisons? Dr. Vogel, it is an honor to have a question from you. Thank you very much. And I think this is a question that has several parts, which I will deal with in turn. But it's important to remember that I am an oncologist rather than working for BMS. So some of these questions might best be addressed to Bristol-Myers Squibb rather than Lizzie Smith. So firstly, I would say with respect to the nivolumab ipilimumab arm, that arm was stopped because of apparently because of it possibly because of increased toxicity as we would imagine from the doublet combination so i'm not sure how that aligns with the idea that they would want to for some reason sell more ipilimumab before the trial the trial was stopped for a safety reason so i think with the comparison so i think we can set that aside and say that we need to use the information that comes to us during a trial to do the best trial for patients in terms of safety and that was what was done whether the statistical considerations are appropriate for the question that was asked i think that they were it's true that the primary endpoint was changed but it's also true that this is a primary endpoint that is helpful for patients and what we're trying to do as oncologists is work with pharma in a symbiotic relationship to try and bring new treatments to the table that help patients. So in terms of the actual statistics of whether they should be corrected for multiple assumptions, multiple assumptions were not asked at the same time. And I might need to defer to my statistical colleagues for whether that needs any correction. But I think we're dealing with one primary outcome at the, at the moment. And that truly shows a clinically meaningful benefit for patients. Vogel, New York. Second, could you tell us the progression-free survival and overall survival for the group with a combined positive score less than 1%? I suspect it was no benefit at all, but they didn't show us that. Now, there's a reason for that, because they want to try and show it works for everybody, even for people in whom it doesn't work by the way they chose to cut up the analysis. Dr. Vogel, I could not agree with you more. This is what I said in my discussion of the trial at ESMO 2020. For sure, it does appear that there are a high number of immunogenic tumors included in the old commerce group. And what we really need to see is the actual outcomes in patients with CPS 1 to 4 and CPS less than 1. Don't forget that this was a late breaking abstract. So this is a limited data set that we are reviewing now. And I'm quite sure that in the manuscript, we will see these results and or any regulatory authorities will have full access to the trial data set when they're making their decisions. But it's a very good question. And I think that one that deserves to be answered. Vogel, New York. So tell us if you think that Bristol Myers is behaving ethically. Truthfully, the ethical premise on which modern capitalism is based is that the highest level of ethics is to make money for the stockholders. And do you think that we should change the ethical driver or change the way they're allowed to make money for the stockholders, perhaps with taxes on lousy studies that don't answer the relevant question? 
Dr. Vogel, that is a great question. And it seems to me that you think that pharma are the dark side and that the anti-capitalist forces are the side of light. And you know, there are lots of different opinions in the world, but the, what I see as us, as academic oncologists, that we need to bring balance to the force for our patients. So what we need to do is take the information that is presented to us by pharma and interpret that in the context of what we think is best for our patients. So I don't think that I'm going to change, to tear down the capitalist stockade at this point in time, but all we can do is take the information, take what we know about the patient and apply that as best we can. And that's how we move forward to get the best outcomes. So this issue will come up again because we have more Bristol-Myers study and Bristol-Myers isn't the only company to figure out what they can do with innovative allocations of alpha. Oh my God, that actually was Vogel from New York. It was. It think? was Vogel. Wow. So what do you think, Lizzie, was his concern about the trial design? Well, what I've seen some talk about in the Twitter sphere is that the trial design did change during the trial. So changed the endpoint and enrolled more patients who were PDL1 positive based on emerging data around CPS scores and the sensitivity of those patients to immune checkpoint blockade. But I have to say, I don't have any problem with that. All that was done and with complete transparency is to change the trial to design a better trial for patients, which is sensible. There's also some talk about the trial being very large and this allows us to detect a smaller p-value, but it doesn't change the hazard ratio even if the trial is massive. So if the treatment is effective or not, is quantified by the hazard ratio as well as the p-value. So yes, the trial design was changed, but I don't think that there's anything underhand about that and it doesn't affect the outcome. So Lizzie, what is your real life experience then of using upfront immune checkpoint only in MSI colon cancer? Well, we've been really lucky in that, in addition to the Cancer Drugs Fund now providing immune checkpoint blockade first line, Over the past year, we've had access through our compassionate use program from BMS to nivolumab or nivolumab and ipilimumab. So I've got referrals from all over the country who've come for these treatments and using the doublet is amazing. So it's like being a surgeon. You just ride in on a white horse and these patients are really sick and six weeks later, they're different. And that doesn't really happen with chemo because you've got this toxicity that goes with it. So it's fantastic experience to, to use these drugs for patients who are sensitive. Chemo's a bit like riding in on a flea-ridden donkey on their legs. <laughs> And Lizzie, the ultimate test is that we're all oncologists and we all start using these agents. And if we don't see what was claimed in the trial, it's pretty obvious very quickly. Would you agree with that? I would. I would. And, you know, I think that at heart, we're here to serve our patients and we do not want to treat our patients with treatments which are not effective, but are potentially more toxic for them. Because certainly, you know, even although we see these increased benefits with immune checkpoint blockade, it does add some degree of toxicity, which we need to manage and which can impact on the patient. So we, we do make our own assessments, but I think that we give them a fair go first. Lizzie, it's been wonderful having you. What can we expect to hear from you and your research in the next little while? 
Oh, okay. So what we are doing in the UK at the moment is we have done some lovely work on CTDNA and esophagogastric cancer. I've just submitted that. So I hope that that will, uh, we're presenting at ESMO Asia, mainly oral, and uh, I've just submitted that. So I hope that paper will come out in the next couple of months. So just like colon cancer, where you did this great work in Australia showing that the minimal residual disease state was predictive of relapse. We're working on that in a very nice national data set in esophagogastric cancer. And having identified that high-risk population, what we would like to do is set up an adjuvant trial where we treat patients with some new drugs, maybe some targeted drugs that we can identify based on their genomic profile in the resection specimen. So watch this space. Lizzie. We're in on that trial, so please don't right. uh, forget yeah. your Aussie collaborator <laughs> friends. That's a good idea. Okay. It's, it's been fantastic. Stay safe. Final word. We're running a little debate with all of our people we're interviewing. Do you think the dress code when you're doing a virtual should be casual? We had people in T-shirts. We had people in ties. We had women with COVID hair like me, big grey stripe down the middle. What's your opinion? You're very stylish. Well, I know that this is a podcast, so you can't see me. And I think I've always had COVID hair, so nothing has changed there. But you can see what I would like to show you is that I do have a a nice shirt on for our interview this morning, but I'm also wearing shorts. So we can do, you can't see them, but we can do half and half. (laughs) So I think the key is to have a Zoom shirt and you can do whatever you want on the other half. Fantastic, Lizzie. All the very best. You're a great friend to us in Australia and we love doing trials and looking at your research. And we hope to have you back again one time on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me again. And to Vogel New York, thank you. And for those people who don't believe it was Vogel New York, we're going to post on Twitter the photos of Vogel recording this session. Thanks again, Lizzie. Thanks to all. Bye for now. Uh, You guys, thank you very much. See you next time on the Oncology Journal Club podcast. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.